Hello and welcome to When Did You Know? My name's Ariel and today I'm joined by Michelle Daltrey. Michelle is a former international hockey player, having represented Wales at the Commonwealth Games and has spent more than six years as chair of the LGBT plus Sport Cymru, de- dedicating her time to making sport safe and accessible for the LGBT plus community around Wales. And she continues to work with LGBT plus organisations around the UK to challenge discrimination in all its forms. Her focus is on ensuring everybody is welcome to participate in sporting or physical activities without any barriers. And she believes that no matter your gender, sexuality, race or ability, there is a safe and inclusive space in sport for you. And Michelle is also director of Football v Homophobia and continues to challenge discrimination in that sport. Michelle has supported numerous projects around Wales during her time in these roles and continues to offer support and guidance for people of all ages. Welcome, Michelle. Good evening. I couldn't work out what time it was then. Hey, how are you? <laughs> well, this will go at any old time, so you can choose the time, it's fine. <laughs> fine. So, to begin with, start with the same three questions in every episode. The first one, how do you identify? Uh, I think I identify as a lesbian woman, although I do sometimes move between that and being gay. Um, not for any particular reason, I don't think. Okay, we say no particular reason. I might ask you more about that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the second question, when did you come out? I think I properly came out. This is, usually, this is a tough question, isn't it? I think I properly came out when I was about 1920-ish, although I may have had some little conversations with some friends before that. And... The final one, which is the point of the show, mm-hmm. when did you know? I think that I started to think about the whole thing or recognise that I was beginning to have some of those thoughts in primary school, um, probably in the last couple of years. So I reckon I would have been about nine or ten um, when I first started to think about it. And I guess I properly knew early secondary school. And I think, well, I tried to pretend and hope that it wasn't the case for quite a long time. And what was it? So what were those kind of first thoughts in primary school? Was there something that triggered it? Yeah, I mean, I think I thought I was in love with one of my teachers in school, um, which became really awkward when my mum started working in the school and continued to do for years after when I was an adult. Um, But I think I had this like, deep connection or thought I had this deep connection with one of my teachers um and I think it was more around an emotional connection rather than anything else at that age um I should probably caveat that with so it's brought up in a rural area of North Wales where the anticipation would be that I should be marrying um one of the boys that I went to school with um and you know work in the local spa and he'd get a job and look after me and would have children and look happily ever after um so I think that was always sort of intended to be the plan because I wasn't surrounded by an awful lot of diversity at all so I didn't see anybody that reflected me I was also brought up in section 28 as well so there was you know nothing I couldn't see anything or anybody like me so I think I thought I was just a bit odd which some would say I probably am <laughs> not at all <laughs> who would say that <laughs> many people <laughs> And so I, I want to come back to the rural Wales um, part in a moment, but what 
when did you first see someone that kind of looked like you when you were like oh that's <laughs> I'm not alone it's I'm not the only one yeah I well I started playing hockey when I was in secondary school um and I think that was the space that enabled me to begin to realize that A, I wasn't alone and B, that it was okay to be the person that I, I already knew by that point that I was. So I saw other women who were part of the LGBT community who were really happy and fine and cracking on with life and had jobs and partners and all the other bits that go within an adult. Um, and it was just fine. Um, and so being around, and I don't think if I had, I'd had, if I hadn't had hockey, I don't know that I'd have had those experiences and opportunities. So, you know, hockey did loads of stuff, sports done loads of stuff for me throughout my life. Um, but that was definitely one of the things. And I still tried to hide it for quite a long time and pretend I wasn't like one of those hockey stereotypes that people always think about. Um, but it was it was definitely being around hockey, getting to travel around Wales, around the UK, around the world, um, and realising actually there's a much bigger community than, than that that I was surrounded in, in, in back at home, I guess. And that's really, I think, from doing quite a few episodes of this, um, a lot of the time sport has been kind of such a barrier. As well. I mean, and especially from my personal experience, I mean, it was, PE was the thing that I would avoid because of the bullying. And I mean, I, I would be there, you know, if we did cross country, I would find every possible excuse to not do it because I was always the slowest. Um, and that would just add to the bullying that I would get anyway, you know, the home frame bullying on top of it. So it's really nice to hear that actually sport was a real um, positive experience for you. Had it, was it generally all, you know, positive, but you had always good experiences with hockey? Well, I think first, you know, to your point, I think that it's different for women than it is for men in sport and physical activity. Um, I think that you're not an anomaly if you're a lesbian playing sport. And in fact, there's an assumption that and I think that's why some of the kind of bullying stuff that goes on around some sports that if you play hockey or football or rugby or cricket in particular you must be a lesbian right and so I was trying really hard not to be that, that thing even though I knew damn well that I was um so I think it is different for for women than it is for men in sport um not for trans women unfortunately um but certainly for you know lesbian and bi cis women um in sport um where my experience is always positive. Um, I think because, I don't know if it's because I tried to hide it for a little bit. I'm trying to see the good in people here um, and whether people just kind of knew, so they were trying to dig a little bit, but there were the, there were a few comments that were, um, before I came out, that were jokes or banter, some of the things that are not great in sport. I think they'd be hidden under the phrase banter. Um, which made me feel less comfortable about coming out and things. But actually, once I did come out, then it was fine. I think it was at the point where I was trying to hide things and pretend I was something. I'm making up really rubbish stories about having a boyfriend, which I didn't have. So quite blatantly was lying because I'm not a great liar and getting caught out for those. That I think those were the things that people were picking up on, if I'm really honest. Um, but I suppose that's for lots of us in the LGBT community. It's that deep-rooted fear about how you'll be um, received and whether that would change your relationships with people and bits like that that was the challenge for me I think. And and how was it you know you talked about growing up in rural Wales how how was that for you coming out and kind of saying who you are? 
so for fam for friends it wasn't a problem at all certainly for hockey friends it wasn't a problem um I didn't come out in school I came out in university um so I didn't tell any of my school friends but when I went to university I made a conscious decision that I was going to go and be just me and I wasn't going to be um a different pretend version of me I was just going to be me and that was it um family was a little bit different um my, my mum is wonderful and really accepting of me and my partner and and has always been great however I I think deep down has a little bit of well it's not anybody else's business so we just won't talk about it um and if we just keep it to ourselves that that's that would be her preference as it would be with most things in life she's quite a private person anyway um but I was kind of encouraged not to tell other family members like my grandparents and things who actually were absolutely wonderful when I did tell them um I would say it was probably not until I'd actually properly left even university and kind of moved away with work and stuff that I was just out and you know Facebook would do its thing and tell people about my life and bits like that um all the things that my mum hates about Facebook but um I think it's my mum's preconceptions and fears of what people might think about us as a family um that probably were some of the underlying fears that were there and you know that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine Section 28 kind of just then reinforced those fears because, you know, the government were telling everyone that it was a pretend family relationships and yeah, it wasn't yeah. a real thing that deserved respect. So Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, there was there was nothing that you'd see on TV at that point. I think the Brookside kiss was just as I was coming to the end of my, like, um, school years, I think. Um, you know, I didn't see anybody or anything like me. Um other than hearing stereotypes about people in sport probably and they were never positive um stories but my reality of seeing people and what they were like and you know there's I guess there were lots of conversations that you know if you go and play hockey or become a lesbian hockey didn't make me a lesbian I was already a lesbian but it just happened to be a safe space where I was I didn't pick hockey just because of that um I picked it because it was a brand new pitch of my Pete and my former teacher was part of the hockey club and she was like you should join and have a go um, I just happened to find a community of people around the outside of me, which made it a really great place to be. Yeah, but Section 28 wasn't particularly helpful. And now I think, you know, you hear some of the conversations that, that are going on at the moment about how politicians view children being taught about relationships. And we've got a six-month-old little boy now. And, you know, I, I really hope that for him growing up, our family will be respected and taught in a, in a better way or just in a way generally, really, than, than it was when I was at school. You've talked about the experiences of trans people in sport as well. And what, so what are you working on at the moment in terms of LGBT inclusion in sport? I suppose in the, with the work that we're doing with the LGBT Sport Alliance, so across the UK, um, ourselves in Wales, Pride Sport in England and Leap Sport in Scotland. Unfortunately, most of our time is taken up at the moment, um, fighting against policies that are exclusionary of trans women um, and that's a really difficult place because there's all these positive things that we should be doing and actually all we're doing is fighting it's probably a fantastic tactic to distract us in some respects but um, we're spending a lot of time supporting governing bodies to be to understand what inclusion really looks like supporting athletes and young people who are being excluded because of new policies um, you know, the last couple of weeks I've been supporting parents whose children 
um, have just come out to them and said that they're trans and helping them to understand nothing to do with sport really I guess but helping support the whole family around how they navigate this really complex world that's appearing for people and um, so that's you know some of the stuff that we're doing and then I guess the you know there's some athletes that we're supporting who are part of the LGB community who particularly high performance athletes find it really difficult to come out particularly guys um in sport so we you know we're, we're doing work to support those athletes um on individual basis and then supporting the government bodies to look at what they can be doing how do you create an environment where people can just be themselves because we know that in a sport context if you can be yourself it makes you you're a better athlete because i'm not concentrating on anything other than the job in hand rather than trying to make up stories about my weekend or you know who i've got on holiday with or any of those kind of things who's picking me up from training and that kind of stuff so we're trying to like educate the broader system but i think it is changing it is better but it's still nowhere near good enough well i mean i've got plenty of ideas as to why that might be but like why do you you know why is that why is it still so difficult for um athletes elite athletes to come out it's such a hyper masculine environment i think as a, as a starting point you know for men in particular I guess there's a stuff around sponsorship, how they'll be perceived by fan bases, the work that we do with football versus homophobia, a lot of that is around the kind of stadium environment and the spectator experience and, you know, ensuring that it's an environment that is free from homophobia, biphobia or transphobia. And I, you know, for, for athletes trying to, there is no, I don't believe that there's any chance that there isn't a Premier League footballer who isn't part of the LGBT community. But the fact that nobody comes out until the end of their career you know, t- tells you all you need to know around that, I think. And it is, you know, the environment and the support that they might get from their clubs and their coaches and their teammates. I don't know if you've seen any of the stuff on social media over the last couple of days around Mbappe, and who allegedly has a trans girlfriend. And the horrific stuff that's on social media, you know, it's, it's that kind of, for all the good things that social media can do, there's that side of things as well, which is just horrific. I think for women, it's different. I think we see, you know, women come out, cis women come out much more easily, I think, in sport. But even then, you look at somebody like Ben Kelly Holmes, who's only been able to come out in her 50s, and you realise there's still an awful lot more work to be done there. Is it quite, I mean, and I'm not a, I'm not a really sporty person, <laughs> so is it quite dependent on the sport as well? So, yeah, you're mm, nodding for the so. listeners. <laughs> yes. I am nodding. I'm nodding vociferously. Yeah, it is different. Um, I think it's it's different for men's sport and women's sport it's different by sport as well and that would say I would say that is in women's sport as well so you know I mentioned a few sports earlier on it's probably not a surprise if you find some lesbian or bi women in hockey for example my sport but there are other sports where it's less visible doesn't mean it's not there but it's less visible in football and rugby Again, you know, you're seeing very, very limited in men's sport, very, very limited people coming out. I mean, you see very limited men coming out. Tom Bosworth came out in athletics. He was one of the first gay men to come out and he's just retired from the sport. You know, there are very few other people that you can name that are high performance athletes that Josh Cavallo came out recently in football and he was the first professional footballer to come out during their career. But, you know, we're talking a couple of people here that I can name that's not, it's not reflective, is it, the community? So you've worked within sport in some capacity for all of your life. So what has been, I don't want to say pick one, but what has been probably one, one of your biggest achievements um, that you're most proud of? You're not allowed to say the Commonwealth Games because that's an obvious one. Well done on that, but <laughs> that's too obvious. <laughs> um, 
I think, this is going to sound really cringy, I think it was taking on the role of chair of the LGBT Sport Network, because until that point, I think I'd been that person that was like, oh, I don't need to talk about it because I'm here just because of who I am and it's irrelevant to anybody. And it was only when I started doing some work around with the LGBT Sport Company group that I realised how much privilege I had in just saying that and you know I stood on the shoulders of so many people beforehand that it enabled me just to be able to be me and it was fine and yet there were so many other people that were still not in that space so I think taking on that role and seeing it grow and develop and there's still so much more that it could and should be doing but having that opportunity I think would probably be probably be the thing that I'm most proud of and actually probably over the Commonwealth Games if I'm honest because hockey's done so much sport has done so much for me you know I've got a career I've gone from being this shy person that didn't have much going for them in terms of communication skills and social skills and all those other bits and now I can't shut up as you can tell um so you know hockey's given me loads and you know it makes me sad to hear you say that you know you hate sport and that you hit from PE and all those other bits because it's fantastic even if you just even if you're just in it for having friends and making connections and offloading when you've had a bad day and all those other things it's fantastic but it's only fantastic if you feel safe and welcome and there's so many people that don't so I think that would be the thing I think and actually that um the last few years and you'll laugh if you hear this I I've taken up running now I say that very loosely because it's probably two or three times a week <laughs> for about half an hour 45 minutes um but that's thank you um but that kind I started doing that because I was really struggling with my mental health and it was a friend who runs and he basically dragged me out with him and that's been amazing and I have done a few sporty things since but it has been really difficult and I can do the running because it's just me and him and I trust him and you know he's my mate and that's okay but the idea still of being in some sort of group situation it absolutely is terrifying to me and I often I I want to believe that that is better in at least PE now in schools for it's not solved of course it's not all gone away but I I I hope that it is just a little bit better compared to what it it was yeah I think it is I think you know like I don't know about when you went to school but when I when I was in school you know girls did gymnastics dance and rounders and boys did football and rugby and rah um I don't know if rah's a sport but it will be from this point onwards that's changed now you know boys can do gymnastics and dance and, and they're doing other sports you know dodgeball and different varieties of, of physical activity that take away some of those kind of stereotypes of you know what boys do and what girls do rubbish and so I think it is better I think it definitely is better I think one of the things that we're seeing with the LGBT sport network is sports clubs and groups think they are inclusive and they will say of course anybody from the LGBT community can come they're more than welcome but they're not doing anything to tell anybody about that. And so we're trying to encourage, um, we've got a map on our website, for example, that people can access and they can find clubs that are saying, we want you to come come along. You'll be welcome and safe and included and supported and all the other bits that go with it. And sometimes that's enough for people to have that little vote of confidence that it'll be okay. But, you know, that relies on people being able to find their way onto our website and knowing that we exist as a group. You know, there's so much more beyond that that needs to be done. We know that people that take part in sport and physical activity that are part of the LGBT community get additional benefits to those who who are from the street community, whoever they are. You know, it's the connection, it's finding other people like you, it's knowing you're not alone. It's all those other bits that are disproportionately affecting our community. 
um, and sport can help even even more so for, for those individuals and for people like me Heather. And I th- and I think it's also a lot of LGBT venue, and this is a sweeping generalisation, um, but I think a lot of LGBT social events are often based around alcohol. So you think of LGBT bars, nightclubs, yeah. and actually finding those queer LGBT spaces that are not based around alcohol are quite difficult to find. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess sport kind of has a role to play there as well. Yeah, we, we were invited, you know, for a few years to attend the Pride events, um, you know, we've marched, etc., which is great. And we've been asked to do like pop-up events at Pride, etc. And we've done them, but ultimately people don't go to Pride to have a go at getting a bit sweaty and trying some sports out, right? And alcohol and moving objects are not the best combination. So it's not the best place to be advertising necessarily some of the, the activities. So finding ways of getting the word out there. You know, there are lots of LGBT specific clubs and groups out there that are just the LGBT community and that and allies and then there are all those clubs out there that genuinely are inclusive but haven't worked out how to sell that message I guess but you're right you know like alcohol isn't the be all and end all of of life and I think the sports sector is just about catching up on that because spectator sport has been very much around you know beer and a pie but football or rugby and, and they're starting to begin to have alcohol free zones etc now because not everybody wants to drink and um, so they're, they're starting to get on get on the move with diversifying their audience and reaching out to different communities yeah but you're absolutely right so i'm going to stop talking about sport for a bit okay. <laughs> um, i but i was interested and i said I'd, I'd want to come back to it but at the beginning you had talked about how you identify in lesbian and sometimes gay is yeah. there are there particular situations have you ever really thought about it or does it just kind of pop out sometimes i think the word lesbian is a bit loaded i think it's a bit I think for me, the word lesbian has more negative connotations. So I think I interchange the two. I think the word gay is a bit more of an umbrella and feels a bit safer to use. I think that's because getting called a lesbian in school was not a cool thing to be called. It wasn't a compliment, that's for sure. So I think I kind of dodged using that word in school just recently, and now I'm trying to reclaim it a little bit. So I think that's probably a subconscious decision that I've made, but the reality is getting called a lesbian is not cool although getting called gay isn't necessarily a uh, compliment either is it a lot of the time the kids calling things gay left right and center oh, the kids how old does that make me how good is it? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I think I think that's probably the the reality of it for me I think yeah it's it's kind of similar to the word queer as well for for yeah. me anyway you know it's the last couple of years I've taken a real conscious yeah it's been a real conscious effort to use that word to describe myself more because it was always a negative thing and you know and that definitely was a negative thing I think it's quite different possibly to lesbian as a word but I'm trying to reclaim it myself especially because more people are comfortable using it to describe themselves but and yeah you're right the kids calling everything gay and (laughs) with you don't sound old thanks oh I did I probably do although I, I was doing a coaching session and this kid was like oh my god that chair's so gay and I was like is it probably not is it <laughs> I mean that was the thing when I was at school and and I was at school towards the tail end of section 28 as well so like nothing was ever really done <laughs> obviously yeah. you didn't say anything and even if you did nothing really happened apart from those few you know brave teachers who broke the law I'm saying that with inverted commas because it you know how um no one no one was ever 
convicted were they under the which I anyway that's a whole history thing of like section 28 that it was yeah. so damaging and yet was never enforced which is great but <laughs> we don't want it to be enforced but it, people it was just a fear yeah yeah I think people lost their careers because of it etc and they've been kind of vindicated now it's a bit bloody late now isn't it the only lesbian that I saw was Katie Lang so I had to pretend that I really liked her music and that's not good sorry Katie but <laughs> not a fan well I was at the time I decided I was a diehard fan and I think it was because it was the only thing that I could find or see that kind of looked a little bit like me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I I don't remember, I mean, any gay male artists apart from like George Michael, but there wasn't really anything when I was growing up. I think I mean, all people have come out since. So like unsurprisingly, I was a huge fan of Steps and yeah, um, H has obviously come out since. So I think I knew all along. <laughs> <laughs> um, but <laughs> it's really embarrassing they were the first band I ever saw but then I saw them again 10 years later when I was 21 so I can't really <laughs> it's just as embarrassing as, um but yeah like I kind of thought there wasn't much and I remember sort of watching a few episodes of Queer as Folk and um, sort of with the the TV on like volume one so I couldn't really hear what was happening but I thought I know these people <laughs> like, yeah. I'm interested <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely there used to be a programme called called Gay TV or something like that. And it used to be on Channel 4 really late. Um, and I had a TV in my room. Um, and above my bedroom door, there was like a little air vent thing. So if I had the TV on when I was clearly supposed to be in bed, and my parents came upstairs, they'd see the light through. So I, I'd have to be on like full watch in case they came upstairs and switch it off. And because it was one of those old TVs, um, again, aging myself, it take it take time for the light to diminish from the TV. So I had to be like preemptive of when they thought they might be coming upstairs in case they came up and saw me watching this horrific thing that I was watching. I don't even know what it was, but at least there was something like me on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like my TV was the same. It was quite quite slow, so they would there would still be light radiating from it for yeah. quite a while afterwards. Yeah, oh. been watching TV now. No, <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. Don't turn it back on and look at the channel that was on. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Like when I was in secondary school, I told my best friend. Um, that I so I basically made up a story and said one of my friends has told me that they think they might be gay what advice do you think I should give them mm. and I can't remember what the advice was but then a couple of days later I was called into my head of years room and they said that they had concerns about me that somebody had said that they were worried about me and that I was having these conversations about thinking that I was gay and that it was definitely just a phase and that I would get over it and they wrote a letter to my mum to explain that they'd had this conversation with me, et cetera. And I never gave the letter to my mum. And as a, as a child, I did the most sensible thing when trying to hide something, which was put it behind the wardrobe in my bedroom. And then years later, when we redecorated, <laughs> this letter appeared. And my mum was like, what's, what's, what's all this about? You know, and I tried to like really hide it and just make up some, some story around it. I remember that moment of being told, you know, by teachers, by adults, that that this wasn't real and that it wasn't, it was just a phase I was going to get over it and it was definitely not the right thing to be and all this kind of stuff. And that's just pants, isn't it? You know, for, for kids to go through that, you know, it's tough enough without having adults telling you you're not right and you don't know about yourself. Um, so that was, yeah, that was my other defining moment and probably the reason why I chose not to come out then again until I went to university. 
because uh, it hasn't been the best experience. <laughs> they're the people you trust. Yeah, and they're that's... the people that should look, you know, after your family, yeah. they are the adults you are told to trust and that you can tell anything to and they will care for you. I get that in that time teachers were in a difficult position however there were choices and mm. there were options and for them to have taken that route that path that that's not okay regardless mm. of whatever the law was at the time because they didn't need to do that they didn't no. you know plenty of teachers didn't <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's very it's very bizarre isn't it when you think about it like that so you think that's such a long time ago but it's not really no um, and it's not you wonder that you know adults now you know the use and the needs of the world now struggle to have you know for people that don't have an education around equality and diversity struggle to verbalize and find empathy with a community that they're not part of because you were told all the way through school that it didn't exist it wasn't real and it wasn't normal and you know, nearly every person from the uk who i've interviewed on this has mentioned section 28 <laughs> so yeah. the impact that that has had I can't get over the fact that a previous prime minister has apologised for Section 28 and yet we are in a part in society where in the UK, in the US, in all different parts of the world, where they're talking of bringing in similar laws again for trans and non-binary people. Mm. How we've got back to that point is, you know, and there is something that you said to me, actually, um, that was very insightful. Well done. Um, A few months ago when I think I was complaining to you about it then <laughs> and um that say you know all those all those civil rights and social movements reach that point when there's really angry voices and they try to take it away and we just have to get over that over that point and it means we're almost there and I've yeah. sort of been clinging on to that personally yeah. but it's still it's tough <laughs> yeah and it's every day isn't it as well like the people that are active allies of the trans community every single day there's a story Every single day there's misinformation or a little chip away at those rights that have been so hard fought for. And I don't like saying, you know, the LGB community will be next because it's like you should only stand up for it because you might lose yours as well. And that's not what I think at all. But you can see that kind of erosion bit go actively, you know, people actively attempting to to take away some of those rights. And um, for all the really, really good stuff, it's why something like Pride is still so important because the job is not done so when people are waffling on on social media or you know nobody cares anymore I mean just get on with it and all this kind of stuff and, and you know the person that I was which was I don't need to talk about the being, being part of the LGBT community because you know it's got it's nobody's business well unless people do talk about it actively we'll be back where we were when we in a few years time the amount of comments so I did an article an interview about the facility treatment that we went through to have Oshram and the number of comments online that I had and I knew I was going to get that were saying about how our little boy is going to need therapy and seek to um, leave us and that it's against God's will and all this kind of stuff you know that in 2022 people and I knew that those comments would come but was you know actively made a decision to, to do that article anyway but the fact that you have to make that choice you know you can understand why some people wouldn't come out why would you put yourself in that position necessarily so there's lots of lots of work still to be done in that space um, and some of it's activism and some of it's education and I think it's it's getting that blend of both that's really important and that can be really challenging I think because there's yeah. so much pain and anger <laughs> and so yeah. it's yeah. it's hard to educate from that place 
but also it's, you know I think it's hard to be an effective activist if you only come from anger as well it's a really hard mm. it's a really hard balance and on what what I've found is when you're in any sort of position where you're re-educating or an activist or whatever you're doing around inclusion generally or LGBTQ plus inclusion as well I, I find that and this could just be imposter syndrome as, as part of you know which I think a lot of LGBTQ plus people have as well which that's a whole podcast to itself but I think there's sometimes that pe- you feel like people are waiting for you to trip up and make one mm. mistake mm. and then discredit you and discredit the whole movement and I've yeah. I, you know I've seen that happen to sort mm. of activist friends um that they'll make one mistake as we all do they could apologise, they could do whatever, but it's as if that has then just made them totally irrelevant, derailed yeah. the whole thing. And and that's a terrifying place to be. And that's another reason why I get why people would stay quiet and not want to kind of yeah. shout out about what, what rights we deserve to have. It's hard to, hard to know who you're fighting with as well sometimes, you know, like, is it a fight versus is it a conversation? You can understand why some people are constantly in fight mode yeah. because most of the time it is. Um, I had a conversation on social media with somebody who was telling us we were completely wrong about the inclusion of trans people in sport. And I kept the conversation going and I had people say to me, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your energy, you can't change people like that. And in the end, we had an offline conversation. And I mean, this is probably like a one in a million chance of this ever happening. But after having a long offline conversation, they apologised on social media and deleted their account which had lots of horrible stuff on it and said that you know they'd had a, a different perspective now nobody has to accept their apology or any of those bits mm. but it is possible that if you can have proper conversations with people but so many people don't want to have a proper conversation yeah. so who who and when do you do that um and i think you know having having podcasts like this are really 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 important to think about the parents at the moment whose children and helping them su- support around their transition they can hear stuff like this and they can hear that they're not alone. So like, you know, for us, and I don't know what your community is like and growing up at home, but it, it, podcasts would not think, you know, we'd be being 21 and all that. Um, <laughs> so I didn't have any of these things to like lean into. There's no resources or anything I could listen to. But at least in this digital era that we have now, people do have places they can go to get information and know they're not alone. So when they're trying to work out who they are and, and what that means for them at least they can get information that's outside of their direct community so good job you <laughs> thank you so I'm gonna I'm gonna get to my to my last question I ask everyone and it's a bit it's a bit cliched and a RuPaul drag racy question but I like it so I'm gonna keep asking it so going back to like when you were like nine ten years old and you kind you had that crush on a teacher and you started to realize that you know you were different what would you go back and say to your nine, ten-year-old self? I remember spending nights, like, in my room, not being able to sleep, thinking, "What, what the hell is this thing?" And I think there was a bit of me that went, "Am I just trying to be different?" I had that going on as well, which was really like, "Why would you want to put yourself in that position of feeling rubbish and all that kind of stuff that was going on?" I don't know. Um, and thinking, well, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna be able to be happy. I'm gonna have to, like, marry my best friend lad, um, who also turned out to be gay, ironically. So it was never gonna work. And that that was the kind of root for me. So I think if I had a chance to go back and say, you know, like all that energy and all that time that I spent trying to be something that I wasn't and trying to hide and I guess isolating myself by 
just not being honest with people and making up stories and all that kind of stuff it would be all right I think I'd be well checked you know like now I've got you know a partner who is awesome don't tell her that bit obviously you know we've got a six-month-old little and um, our families couldn't be more supportive life's awesome um you know people support us and we're accepted and so I, I think a little kind of looking glass through to what it's like now versus what it was like then I think that would be the thing that I'd want to want to cast on myself I think You've been listening to When Did You Know with me, Ariel Chapman, and my wonderful guest, Michelle Daltrey. Don't forget you can follow me on Instagram at WDYKpod and my Facebook page at When Did You Know. Just to let you know, I'm going to be closing the Twitter account because with everything going on there, it doesn't feel like the best place to be right now and I don't really want to support hate. Um, Also, you can email me at wdykpod at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to appear on the show. Until next time.